A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. How am I supposed to refer to you guys? Do I just call you Greg 1 and Greg 2? Or? <laughs> okay, Peter 1, Peter 2. Peter 2. Peter 3. All right, let's I remember running home from school, turning on the TV to the Cubs game, sitting with my dad to watch his heroes. Welcome to the World Series Dreaming, Chicago Cubs Dreamcast, now hanging out with the guys at Obstructive View. We are not affiliated with the actual Chicago Cubs, but we're just a bunch of fans who love the local nine and enjoy talking baseball and, of course, the 2016 World Series champion Cubs. Good day. This is Kent. I go by Rice Cube on the socials. And with me today are the Gregs. We are into the Gregiverse, I guess, with Mr. Greg Huss and Dr. Gregory Zuma. I'm one of the hosts of the Cubs on Deck podcast and then one of the co-founders of Northside Bound. Yeah, I, we're, we're, we're out posting all about Cubs prospects all the time over at, at northsidebound.com. Greg, I didn't mean to take all of your thunder because we have a very similar story here. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty yeah, sure that's So now it's Mr. Zumok's turn. <laughs> well, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Ivy Futures, but I would echo a lot of what Greg says. Uh, Greg Huss said just with, you can find me at Northside Bound. I jump on and, and co-host with the revered Greg Huss on Cubs on Deck for the podcast. We have a really fantastic episode with our third co-host, Brian Smith. So if you haven't checked that out, you know, by all means to Really happy to be here and, and excited to talk about some Cub prospects, but just excited for the season to start. Yeah, I'm glad uh, you guys are with me. And of course, Brian Smith is with Bleacher Nation, does excellent work. And I really appreciate you all being with me today because like, I'm trying to get our podunk little podcast back off the ground. And to have respected denizens of Cubs blogosphere with me is an honor. And I appreciate you gentlemen helping us uh, talk a little bit about, say, the prospect list published so far by various publications, including Baseball America, Baseball Prospectus, Fangraphs, and so on. Prospects, you know, that just missed and should be more hyped because, you know, there are a lot of folks saying, hey, how come the Cubs only got three top 100s? There should be more. How you yourself evaluate and rank prospects, you know, some thoughts on ETA for these prospects that we have, both the top ones like Pete Crow Armstrong and under the radar guys that I might not have heard about. Obviously, some of these guys aren't going to remain in the system. So who would we want to trade and who are we keeping on the do not touch ever list? Greg Zumach actually talked a little bit about draft thoughts for 2023. Cubs pick 13th overall in the first round. And then there's like some weird compensation stuff going on. And let's talk a little bit about the new rules announcements and how you think that's going to affect our team. So how do you guys think of that as plan? I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's do it. I love it. As the spring gave away to summer, past the ivy colored dreams, toward the days that kept us yearning for tomorrow. So we know that there are three basically consensus top prospects in the Cub system that made Pretty much all of the top 100 lists, you have Pete Guerrero Armstrong, who is now the top prospect in the system. You have Brennan Davis, and then you have Kevin Alcantara. So do you agree with just the three? Do you think there should be more? Do you think some of them are a little too high rank? Because I honestly don't know. I think they're all pretty good. (laughs) And I feel like for myself, it seems fair just based on who else was on the list. Because for me, if you want more Cubs, that means someone else has to lose a top 100 prospect. As somebody who doesn't follow this as closely as you guys, I can't think of a name that you bump to add another prospect. Yeah, I think you kind of nailed it. There are there are the three kind of consensus top 100 guys. And then after that, you'll see somebody kind of sneak their way in maybe every once in a while. But I, I think the big my I don't see guys that are clear cut top 100 guys. For me, it is where the strength of the system lies is in that next wave of like 50 or so prospects. Right. So I've kind of hinted at the fact or like not even hinted. I've, I've blatantly said it said that I, I believe that this system has 
upwards of 10 guys, 10 to 12 guys that you can consider to be top 150 prospects in all of baseball. And so when you're looking at someone like Owen Casey or Jordan Wicks or Hayden Wesneski or Christian Hernandez, there's several guys that they're one thing away there, whether that's producing a little bit more at the plate or developing one more pitch a little bit better. They're, they're one small tweak away from being a top 100 guy. And, and I am willing to bet on those 101 to 150 ranked guys to kind of break out in a bigger way, whether that's this year or in the years to come and make an impact in Chicago. But Zubak, I don't know, how, how do you feel about that kind of group? Is there anyone that you see in your mind as like a, a top 100 guy? I mean, it, he's not getting a ton of pub, and, and I'm actually trying to dive into why, but I think it's Jordan Wicks. The way I look at him and the way I, when I talk to evaluators and other folks kind of inside the game, I'm a little shocked that Jordan Wicks doesn't get more publicity. Digging into it, I think I've got some, some reasons, and I think it all comes down to the slider. It, and it's how people evaluate that slider. For instance, Baseball America, I, and I'm not going to rag on a publication. I think that, like, I can't do what they do. I can barely handle one system. There's no way I can <laughs> handle all 30, right? So, like, I'm not I'm not here to, like, degrade any publication. I subscribe to these publications. I think that they provide positive benefit um, and so a good view of the game. But I think when we look at Jordan Wicks, Baseball America was was pretty quick. And I, I discussed this with the evaluator in the, in the chat. They just don't think the slider is much of anything. And when you look at the metrics, that doesn't match up. In fact, it gets like really, really high levels of metrics. And so then the big question is, so where's the disconnect, right? Well, the disconnect is how are hitters reacting to that pitch? Well, hitters swung and missed at that pitch an above average amount of time in the minor league. So clearly hitters are telling you that it's a pretty good pitch. Um, and we're not talking like 19-year-olds in in a ball we are talking about like some of the the premier hitters in in high a and, and double a so i think jordan wicks is the one that i don't agree with the evaluations i think everybody else you can you could look at matt Mervis and say hey you know what he and and hayden westneski and say the age bothers us and i think that's fair you can look at a few of these other guys kate horton hasn't pinched yet in an affiliated ball. And there are some people that are like, I'm not slapping a top 100 grade on that guy. And I think that's fair too. Jordan Wicks is the one guy that I, I don't quite get it. But if you were to ask me about lists in general, I believe the most in Kylie McDaniel's evaluations and his connections within the game. And to be fair, he's got Jordan Wicks at 51. So that's probably the list I respect the most. Um, and to get back to Greg Huss's point, it's that second tier of people. So yeah, the Cubs only have three top 100, but in Kylie's list, they've got seven of the top 129. So like, I'll take that over focusing on the, the three in the top 100. Okay, that's fair, gentlemen. And my, one of my questions to you is based on top heaviness. So you know how the Orioles system is basically uh, the consensus number one system because they have eight top 100 uh, prospects, but because they basically sucked for a decade in order to build that system. Obviously, the Cubs cannot do that. They can't afford to do that because of, you know, various reasons. However, what do you guys think of the system not necessarily having a bona fide superstar, but having so much debt that you you can basically go out and buy a superstar coming on to free agency afterwards because you filled the entire roster internally with at least league average or, you know, solid ball players. The depth is really, really impressive. And I think that is something that the Cubs did not have in their last contention window that won them a World, World Series is they were not develop, developing players every single year to make an impact in Chicago. The the core came up all at the same time. And the way they did that was there was nothing else behind behind them, right? So they had to go out and pay for pitching. They had to go out and pay for bench bats. They had to go out and pay for things like that. But the way they've been developing their system this go around, and I've been kind of beating the drum on this for the past couple of years now, is they're set up in a way that they can call up two or three starters whether that's in the rotation in the bullpen in the in the in the lineup every single year for the next few years and that is super super valuable it, it kind of mimics the way we've seen the Dodgers develop their major league roster over the past few years so I really like that the thing that I wanted to hit on most here while I can get down with the idea that people are not 
they don't really see that superstar in the system because you don't see a top 10 prospect in all of baseball right now. I think that we've kind of fallen into a trap a little bit where that is a, a, a great talking point that people love to just continue to hit on. PCA is a top 30 prospect in baseball. And if we're going like in theory, one, every team has one superstar, right? If you want to look at it in that way, then in theory, the top 30 prospects in, in baseball are considered like superstar elite type prospects. PCA is a top 30 guy. So I'm more hesitant to say the Cubs don't have a superstar. And, that, and that's followed by two guys and one in Brennan Davis that was teetering right around that top 25, top 30 range for a little while. And then you got Kevin Alcantara, who I think by by the end of the season, for sure, that Kevin Alcantara can be a top 20 prospect in all of baseball. So, yeah, I, I'm just, I, I feel really passionately that, that this system does have a superstar here. Um, I'm not sure which of those three it is. Maybe it's maybe it's two of them. Maybe it's three of them. I don't know. But I think that even though there's not three guys ranked in the top 10, that doesn't mean there's not a whole lot of upside in the system right now. Yeah, I would I would echo that because, you know, and, and I don't want to just echo everything Craig says, <laughs> but I do tend to agree with him on a lot of these points because like, OK, this podcast is World Series Dreaming, right? And that's what needed to happen in 2014, 2015, 2016. It was absolutely a burn the ships moment, right? Like you had people that were making gambles and 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 bets and and pretty much saying like I'll I only need one kidney I, I'd give up one for the Cubs to win the World Series. Like people were basically like making a deal to give away organs if the Cubs would win the World Series. So there was no prospect that was off the table <laughs> to to make and supplement that core when it needed to, and and they won. And sometimes that doesn't always work. There's definitely a timeline where that doesn't work. But, like, it worked. And we can wear 2016 World Series Cubs, you know, gear, and we can make the joke about, you know, people forget that, that the Cubs won the World Series. We can, we can do all those things. So it absolutely needed to happen. But, like, there was nothing. If the 2018 to 2019 Chicago Cubs could call up a guy like Justin Steele or even Keegan Thompson to supplement they're pitching in the middle of that. They're probably not paying for Cole Hamels to come back at $20 million a year. They're probably not trying to beg, borrow, and steal to try to find a pitcher. They just, they had nothing. They had nothing. Jed Hoyer saw that all go down. And I'm not saying that Jed is making like perfect decisions and everything. Like he's nailing it. I mean, we joke about the Jed's league thing, but like they saw what happened. And now, uh, not that they're flawless, but they're clearly building out just it's not waves and waves and waves, but it's it's every year they've got some viable guys. And it's the fact that people like Porter Hodge, Luis Devers, Daniel Palencia in previous years, they'd be talked about as just ridiculous, like the biggest stories of the year. But now they're just part of a You know, a depth of pitching. So I, I definitely agree. I do I do think they have a superstar in the system because we talk about do they have like a top 10 prospect? No, not yet. But they've got like three guys with that potential. PCA isn't even capped at where he is. He's not like, oh, this guy's done. You know, he's not going to be on a list next year. He's almost definitely going to be on a list next year. He could be as a top 10 profile. Kevin Alcantara, exactly what you were saying. That's a top 15, 30 profile. So like they went young. And those guys are just, they're coming. So, yeah, I, I, I'm excited for them. Can, can you imagine back in the era when Oscar De La Cruz was the top prospect in the Cubs system, like having even Daniel Palencia? We would have lost our minds. Like, <laughs> there was just, there was a time when, when the system was just bare. Like, there was nothing there. And we're ranking guys in the, in the 10 to 15 range, like Daniel Palencia. And, Literally five years ago, he would have been number one by a long shot on our prospect list. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, there there's probably an argument to be made that if you went back to Pipelines or Baseball America's maybe like 2018 list or 2019 list, like I'm not sure outside of maybe one of them who would even make like a top 30 list. Nico would have. Nico and Brennan and maybe Cole Roeder after 2018 draft. But like maybe that's a top 30 list. Like it, there's just there's nothing. There was nothing there. After the Quintana trade, there, there was pretty much nothing. Because once Ian Happ exhausted his rookie eligibility, like, there was nothing in the system. It was it was rough. No no disrespect to any of those guys. I'm not trying to 
degraded. But like when we evaluate that versus now, it's just it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I think what you gentlemen suggested is something that I I also noticed is, you know, after you called up the core that won the World Series, like you said, there was nothing behind them that was worth all that much. Right. And that that was a problem of scouting, I guess. And I think they fixed a lot of those problems because now you can see like folks coming from undrafted free agency like Matt Mervis or that that was a weird year. But still, like he have been like late rounds. Then I'm thinking of guys like, you know, Javier Baez or Albert Mora that it, it almost seemed like they fell off a cliff and you know that the talent is there. So this kind of leads into the next question. But when you evaluate and rank prospects, you also have to think about how to develop and cultivate and sustain those prospects and make sure that they reach the talent potential that you see in them. So how do you think the Cubs are making sure of that this time around so that basically you don't have a well, we've burned out the talent and now it's just going to fester on our payroll for the next few years. So basically we're getting to like, how do you project guys to work within your development system, right? That's a really, really, really hard question. And probably not something that could really do justice as well as some other uh, like evaluators or, you know, like a Craig Breslow or something could do. Because obviously I'm not Craig Breslow. It's it's a question I'm constantly asking both myself and other people within the game because I I spend a lot of my time looking at like draft and so when well that's not as young as as evaluating international free agency we're still talking about some kids that are like 17 years old and so weighing how a person how a player is playing right now how they project to play but also what kind of development steps they're going to take and what kind of certain characteristics that they may have at these younger ages or lower in the development pipeline that are good bets that they're going to continue, right? So like one of the arguments is individuals that can hit the ball really hard, generally keep hitting the ball really hard. I know that sounds really simple, but like it it matters, right? If a guy can hit the ball consistently over like, you know, 90 miles an hour, there was a pretty good article on, I think on fan drafts that said that you know, those players do really, really well in, in the major leagues. If you don't hit it that hard, that's okay if you think you can project the guy to eventually do that. I'm just going to point out maybe some of the pitching components here, because I think that that's probably the more unique area and where the Cubs have somewhat shined. And that is the fact that in the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of pitchers be able to pick up sweeper sliders from the Cubs. That's just it, it's kind of the joke. You know, I, I do a whole thread about a, a pitcher like Michael Fulmer, who already throws a good slider. And my first question is, could he throw a sweeper along with that? And it turns out that, yeah, he might. There's probably going to be a major league pitcher that's going to be breaking out probably a sweeper this, this year, like more of an established major league pitcher. That, I'm not trying to tease that or anything. We're, we, you'll see it here in spring training here pretty soon if, if it clicks. <laughs> but the Cubs are clearly bought into that. And... That doesn't mean that that's the only thing they're doing, but what they're taking is these pitchers that are good sweeper candidates tend to throw the ball with a wrist position that is what we would call supinated. So it's more to the side. It would be like super simplistic. I'm not a biomechanicist. So they throw the ball more to the side. And if you look at the guys from like the Houston Astros organization, they're and, and the Dodgers actually both, they tend to throw the ball that's more pronated. So they don't really throw sweeper sliders as much, but they're they're prioritizing these type of, of pitchers. And I think the Cubs have found a bit of a market inefficiency. Some guys that can get a little bit on the cheaper side, like a Porter Hodge uh, at a, as a lower round pick, where they teach him a sweeper, all of a sudden, whoa, whoa, hold on there. We know how to work with that fastball, and now we're giving you a swing in this slider. Like, we know how to do that, and we got it for, like, a, a market inefficiency. And so... When we project like who might succeed within the Cubs development system, those type of pitchers, pitchers that throw with like a cut ride fastball like Justin Steele, they throw with a bit of a supinated grip, they might be good sweeper candidates. It doesn't mean those are the only guys the Cubs are taking. Kate Horton is a good example of doing those things. But it is an example of like how we're projecting certain guys to fit in with the development system. Uh, you mentioned the sweeper. Is it is it just for lefties or both both handedness? Because you're you're basically throwing it at a different angle than what folks are 
used to and the movement is just so foreign from what they're used to that it's that much more effective yeah so i wouldn't even say it's necessarily that more much more effective but it's more effective for certain people so um just like a really quick view because i'm not a super pitching expert but i've been trying to dive into this a little bit it's all about like what the whole mix looks like and if you go on something like baseball savant you can see a visual pitch pitch report and it breaks down like what each pitch does and you can kind of see how the different pitches are differentiated. I liken that to painting, you know, painting a painting where you can have some really impressive pitches on their own, but if the whole picture doesn't come together, then it it just looks disjointed. And that's kind of like pitching. And with a sweeper slider, it's a lot of horizontal movement. It's somewhat of a newer pitch, but people have kind of been throwing it for a while. Hayden Wesneski, he throws the ball and it generates, it can generate about 20 inches of movement away from a right-handed batter. And you can you could throw that ball so it looks like it's coming right at the hitter and then it breaks into the strike zone. Or you can throw it where it looks like it's going in the strike zone, it goes out of the strike zone. So you can do a lot of things with it. On its own, it, it's still, it, it's not a perfect pitch. And it's mostly a grip and, and movement of the wrist. And so it's just, it's just kind of a, a different pitch. There are some really good, some of the best sliders in baseball are gyro sliders, which means they just go like straight down. And those are still really, really good pitches. It's all about the whole pitch mix and how it works. Whenever I'm feeling like a big nerd, I can just talk to you, Greg Z, and it makes me feel a little bit better about myself. So, <laughs> no, I uh, <laughs> I think that I think that you kind of nailed it. Uh, I'll add that, like from from a less uh, technical perspective, I guess something that I've noticed is that if you're looking at the draft classes in the past couple of years compared to a few years ago. You got Dan Kantrovitz running the draft show for the Cubs now, and I've liked what what Dan has done with the draft the past couple of years. I wouldn't describe the draft classes as being all that significantly better off first glance. Like you're not looking at the draft class, you're like, oh, like he killed it so much. Like he was so much better than what we had as a draft class a few years ago. I don't look at it that way. Instead, you just notice that they are significantly different, right? They're targeting different types of players. They're not afraid to go after some young guy, like some, some high schoolers, some high school arms um, with very distinct development paths to the bigs. So that's what I've noticed. And I think that the Cubs have leaned heavy into that, like trusting in their development of both hitters and pitchers in the minor leagues. And a big part of that is that the coordinators and the coaching staff, like they are all very, very impressive. I think the mindset, I think that the Cubs right now, the people that they have in place are extraordinary at being able to take super nerdy stuff like what we're talking about, right? Like the the spin rates and the the wrist positioning and what I guess what the ball what they want the ball to do. I'm talking about pitching right now, what they want the ball to do and being able to explain that to a player that wants no part of digging into the analytics of things. I think that the coaching staff is so, so good at like communicating in a way that everybody understands. And that is so, so important. And also understanding like who you're talking to, like as a coach, like you can't communicate the same way with Ed Howard, the way that you communicate with Owen Casey or somebody else. I I don't know those guys particularly, specifically, I guess, but it's just all these guys speak different, speak baseball different. And I think the coaching staff is particularly impressive at doing that right now. And as a follow up from the previous question, when I talked a little bit about the previous course, for example, an Albert Amora that basically dropped off a cliff and is now essentially below replacement, despite being so highly hyped. When I look at the prospects from the past couple of seasons that came up that aren't Nico Horner, for example, like Christopher Morell was very highly touted. He obviously held his own, but then you, you see like certain deficiencies in his profile. Is there like a infrastructure in place to help him fix that? Like, I don't, I don't know if it's a swing issue or a pitch recognition issue, but he just like swung and missed quite a bit. And you're just like, well, he shouldn't be this bad because of what he was able to do in the minors. But he basically got caught. He, he skipped AAA, is that correct? And so I don't know if that like affects his development any and then the, the pressure to remain at the major league level because there basically was nobody else to, who could do what he did. It, it made it a little bit more pressure dr- driven for him. 
Yeah, I, I don't know that I could properly answer your question about uh, specific development schemes to fix an issue like that, uh, because I think that every player, it, something that, that the development staff is very good at is personalizing things uh, so that every player is kind of different in the way that they go, they get coached and things like that. But I will say specifically about a guy like Christopher Morrell, I think that most of us that were watching Morrell throughout his time in the minor leagues I think that like overall, like the numbers that he put up over the course of the season, I know he started off hot. I know he ended really, really poorly, but I think overall the course of the season, the numbers he put up are kind of like on par with what I expect him, I expected from him at the major league level. I mean, we know what we're getting with Christopher Morrell is the fact that he hits the ball extremely hard. He throws the ball extremely hard. He plays extremely hard. Um, he runs fast. He, he's just a very exciting player. But with that, you also get some negatives as he swings and misses quite a bit. He's he can be kind of crazy out on the field, whether he's playing third base or second base or center field, makes some some weird mistakes. But I think that overall, what we saw from Christopher Morell is kind of what I expected. And I know that there's been a lot of discussions about about Morell potentially being um, the starting third baseman for the Cubs. And if you're if you're penciling in Christopher Morell as your starting third baseman long term. I think you're doing him a disservice in terms of the value that he can bring to a major league baseball team. I think where his value lies is getting nearly full season worth of at-bats, nearly like a starter's worth of at-bats, but while playing some center field, playing some third base, playing some second base, filling in at shortstop if you absolutely need him to. I think that that, or really any outfield spot, that's where his value lies. In addition to him hitting the crap out of the ball in terms of exit velos and things like that. So overall, I, I really was pleased. And I thought that like, that was what I expected to see from Christopher Morrell, especially as a super young guy. And like you said, Ken, like skipping triple A. Yeah. So I actually had to go back and look because when Chris Morrell came up, which Chris Morrell was never supposed to be up this whole season. It was just like a, it's supposed to be a short term thing. And he proved in a short period of time that there were certain qualities that he had displayed as a minor league hitter that he all of a sudden wasn't displaying as a major league hitter. And I mean that in a good way. The biggest one is chase rate. I've seen Chris Morrell since he played in Eugene, RIP, and he he chased the ball. Like the ball, there were a few that, that bounced and, and he still swung at them. He got to the major leagues and he was not chasing the ball. And there was a lot of people that were like, whoa, this is really impressive. So May 17th, Either he, that was the day he got called up or that was the day it was announced. And I remember I said, I'd guess we see something like 252 batting average, 333 on base, 430 slug with 29% K rate, some bombs and incredible defense plays all over the diamond. And I kind of think that's about what we got. I, I don't remember what the K rate actually was, but that feels somewhere around there. He's a 23-year-old guy who showed a lot of physical tools, but clearly still needs to put a lot of things together. I would agree with Greg Huss that I wouldn't, I don't want him just sitting at third base. I want him kind of bouncing all over the place. I want him to be, to get some opportunities, but also have some times where you just don't play in that game and just allow him to watch the game. Allow him to talk to hitters like Cody Bellinger, you know, like Trey Mancini and, and Ian Happ, and just kind of like see the game a few different ways. So, like, I'm not too worried about Chris Morrell. And this is coming from the guy who I think I caused a bit of stir sometimes on Twitter when I kept throwing Morrell out in, like, trade discussions. Like, oh, we could. But that's mostly because I see a guy who is a rookie who actually showed a lot of physical skills that needs to iron some things out. But some teams are going to be very, very intrigued about it. He may just fit really well in the Cubs. But he's a guy that I think he showed teams the Cubs and others that you know what he's got some chops to keep playing it just it's just it's it's not a finished product yeah and I guess a, a similar question that I had about Nelson Velasquez who obviously has some power and can play defense but he wasn't able to take advantage of his opportunities and I'm wondering if that's just a little bit of greenness and and pressure all together so I, I'd like to see these guys get get another chance, especially since they're still on the 40-man roster, right? <laughs> I'm glad you, you guys uh, were able to mitigate some of those concerns.
Zuma, you had alluded to one of the later questions. The way to frame this is there are only 26 active roster spots. There are only 40 40-man roster spots. You cannot keep all these guys because of Rule 5, like minor league free agency, yada, yada, yada. So at some point, some of these guys have to be traded. So if you were to put together a fantasy package for whoever, like let's say the Angels declare bankruptcy and they have to trade Shohei Otani and Mike Trout right now. Basically, who who would you want to trade or at least uh, dangle, even if you don't get Trout or Otani? So I, I'm almost going to kind of craft something without a Trout or Otani because we believe in these prospects. I don't want to speak for Greg Custer, but like we believe in these prospects. But there's like no prospect off the table for some for something like that like they're at least in my mind but let's let's say you're talking about a guy who's like a legitimate like number one starter you know two or three years of control number one starter i can't come up with a name right now but like just something like that and if you have to move some of these guys pca and alcantara are probably the two that i'm really trying not to but also knowing that if you have to move one of them i could i i honestly i could go back and forth on like which of those two because I really think Kevin Alcantara is like a future superstar. We did our rankings in October, but if I did my rankings now, I don't think he's one, but he's like right up there. And, and this is no disrespect to anybody, but like, oh man, I think the more and more people I talk to and the more reports I read is like, oh my God, Kevin Alcantara is going to be amazing. So I'm trying to avoid sticking them in, but like also I, I'm willing to if, if you need to. I think the big question is, do you, I don't know if I can call out like specific players. Maybe Owen Casey's the guy that like if you have him on a roll and you really want to intrigue a team, he's got a lot of hitter qualities and a lot of a skill like a really good skill set that I, I think that could be really intriguing. I'd be fine moving a pitcher too. When we were talking about like Sean Murphy before he was dealt to the Braves for barely anything. Cade Horton got brought up a lot, and so did Jordan Wicks. But Cade Horton was a guy that intrigued the Oakland Athletics. I think they thought they were going to have a chance on him lower down in the draft, and he, and he never made it to them. So, you know, those kind of type of players where the Cubs got him, where and another team probably thought they were going to have a chance on him, or, you know, maybe a week before, that's probably the type of guy that I'd be willing to move. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's a really tough question because I can't like isolate specific guys, and I'm like, great, get them out of here. Um, <laughs> and 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 I'll acknowledge that bias, but like, I think that there are a few people that it's like, okay, you can we can look at how the system is shaping up, and like, yeah, if Owen Casey is a sticking point for like a premier player, I'm doing that. I'd, I'd understand it, and I'll miss Owen, but like, I could make that work. I'll agree that that no player is ever 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 off limits um, major league or minor league system at all as far as guys i could see being traded or would i think would package well in a deal for major league talent to me it's it right now the major league team is not good enough to be trading prospects for major league talent and i am really hopeful that they can compete for a wild card spot this year but i'm i'm like a really firm believer that you should be trading prospects when you're trying to take a, a team from good to great, not making a team good. And at this point, I don't think the team is good enough that trading away, unless you're trading away uh, Nico, PCA, and uh, and Owen Casey for Shohei Otani. Like, that's a different thing, like like what, what Zumak was saying. But yeah, I, I just don't think that even getting like a guy like Sean Murphy this offseason, I don't think that would have made this team even the best team in the division. I think the Cardinals would still still would have been a, a better team going into opening day this year, even if they got Sean Murphy. So to me, I don't think that we're at the point where we can talk trading prospects. And that's awesome because you can still continue to let them develop. As we talked about at the beginning of this, of this episode, right, that we feel like there are a lot of Cubs prospects in that 150, really, that, that 101 to 150 range. And so what that allows for is those guys that are in in that range to continue to develop and become top 100 prospects, to become 50, uh, top 50 prospects, or the other end of the spectrum, the Jordan Wickses and Hayden Wesneskis of the world to actually get established at, at the major league level. So by the time the team is actually good and not middling or whatever you call this current 
state of the team, then you can start to trade away some prospects that are top 100 guys. And you have like maybe four or five top 100 guys. And it's more, it's easier to stomach the idea of trading a guy instead of a system that only has three top, top guys. But yeah, I guess my answer, my, my long winded answer is I don't think it's time to do that. I don't think, I don't think this season is, is time to make that happen, but I think that you look at the outfield depth. I, I know it took a hit a little bit with Alexander Canario going down with his injury this offseason, but there was a reason why there why people were calling for the Cubs to trade some outfield depth. Now I'll be really excited when that depth is at the major league level, and then you can trade from the major league depth and not just your prospect depth. But I'm waiting on that to happen. That's something that the the Dodgers have gotten. I, I reference the Dodgers again, but I mean they've been the clash of the league for the past eight years now. So you look at the Dodgers and that's something they've done is that you, you wait until you get uh, backing up of talent at the major league level. Not when you have four guys in your outfield in double A Tennessee. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's been like sound bites of say Jed Hoyers thinking we should be like the Rays. And I think he meant that in terms of we should be developing players like the Rays not being, you know, cheap as hell. But anyway, the other spectrum is where you said the Dodgers, of course, they are able to sustain a high payroll and they're also able to just like pull prospects out of the air, like a rabbit out of a hat, almost like the Cardinals in a way, but without as much devil magic, I guess. That's that's the kind of system that I would like to the Cubs to develop into and actually sustain this time around. And I think they could do that. I think uh, the next question I have is about the variance, because I know that a lot of our prospects right now have really high floors. But for me, anyway, someone who is not as well versed as you guys, I, I kind of have to squint to see like sky high levels of talent. I know that they can probably do something really solid at the major league level. I just very much struggle to see a superstar uh, other than PCA, but I really want to believe. And I think the level of variance in all the, these prospects allows you to have that level of hope to say, if everything breaks right, if they develop well, if the Cubs don't screw anything up, they could become this, you know? And uh, I was wondering what you guys thought of that kind of philosophy. Yeah, I mean, superstars win championships, so I think you always want superstars. And I do think there's there are guys with sky-high ceilings um, in the system. We kind of talked about PCA, we talked about Alcantara. I can't remember if we mentioned Christian Hernandez earlier, maybe Greg Huss did. But, like, th- those are guys with massive ceilings. It's PCA notwithstanding, there's a pretty high variance there. And in general, that's what you're going to get. Like, if you get a superstar-type prospect unless you're picking really really high or have like a Chris Bryant they almost always have a really high variance and there's a reason why Chris was almost universally the number one prospect in baseball we, we mentioned the Orioles earlier well they have Gunnar Henderson he's the number one prospect in baseball and so like yeah he doesn't have a huge variance on that but like you're kind of gonna get that and and that's just that's a bit of why you admittedly kind of pick the sampling menu, so to speak. You build all this depth. You have it where in previous years, if if Chris Bryant didn't work out, the 2015 Cubs aren't doing anything. The 2016 Cubs aren't winning the World Series. Like, I'm not even saying not worked out. I'm saying like, if he's one and a half to two win hitter at the major league level, it's not happening. We're, we're, not, we're not wearing 2016 gear. The Cubs had to have that work out to win. And now they don't have a particular player in their system where it's like, if this guy doesn't hit, it's over. And so it is good to have variants. It's good to have a few guys that are really cool. And and I hope that they honestly are still going for superstars. Now you build up this depth. I think you can take some chances. But we saw that in the 2022 draft where it's like, oh, they, they took some chances. Kate Horton isn't a sure thing, but he's got some high upside potential. Jackson Ferris has got some high upside potential. Nazia Mule is, is upside personified. It's a crazy upside. Tons of risk. But you take a bunch of those guys, and then if you get a couple real impact guys, it's huge. Only thing I'll tack on to that is that that upside that they're drafting for right now. You mentioned all those guys just now, Zumak, and I think that what you get is a team that is very confident in their development. Uh, their development team, right? Because they, they're very confident you can take a late round draft pick 
or a starter turned reliever or reliever turned starter or whatever, like the the guys that aren't highly thought of and turn those into productive big league players, not star big league players, not even necessarily like a six hole hitter on a team, you know, but guys that can fill out the rest of the roster. So with all of those high upside risky type players, quote unquote, risky type players, what you can hope for is landing that two of those end up landing instead of needing four of those to land. Because if you have two superstars, then you can fill out the rest of the roster with just good quality players that you've developed by drafting in rounds five through 15 or undrafted guys like Matt Mervis or Ben Leeper from that 2020 class. So yeah, I, I think it, it's, that's kind of what I, when I was alluding to to the different looking drafts recently, that's kind of what I meant, right? Is that they're, they're drafting these guys that are, could really hit with Kate. Kate Horton is a risky pick. Jackson Ferris was a, was a risky pick. Nazir Mule was a risky pick. Like all these guys are like really high upside dudes, but they could fizzle out in high A. I mean, that, that's what you get with prospects, like with minor league baseball in general, especially with some of these guys. So yeah, I, that makes me feel feel confident in the development team to put together players that just log some solid at bats, you know? Actually glad you guys reminded me because Nazir Mole is uh, one of those guys that they're trying to develop as a two-way uh, player. So he both pitches and hits apparently, which is really cool. I don't think he'll ever be Shohei because nobody can be Shohei. But what, what do you guys think of his ability to stick with both? Or are you seeing him as gravitating towards one or the other? And basically, he won't be a two-way player after all. I think they're they're open to him doing some two-way stuff until he basically proves that one way is, or the other is the, is the way to go. I'm not saying that that's – like, I haven't had – Anybody from the Cubs say like, you know, we're we're just entertaining him. That's not the case. I think they're they're he just has a lot of talent, and they're just letting his play dictate kind of his development, which is pretty good strategy. The Cardinals did that with Mason Wynn, and and it worked pretty well on that. So if I have to just guess right now, I, I would say he ends up as a pitcher. I think the the arm is really impressive, and like not only velocity, but like you can see that he's developing. A really good breaking ball, and and I think we've got some reports that he's kind of working on a changeup. It's easy to just read those things in a report until he actually goes out and does it. But I don't know if I just had to guess right now, just start in the air. I'll just say pitcher, but I think he's got some fun potential. The bright side is that I have not spoken to anybody in the Cubs organization about Nazir Mule at all, so I can say whatever the heck I want to say right now. I, I am with Zumek though. I think that I think that ultimately he does end up as, as a starting pitcher. And just because to me, when you're developing guys like this, the the upside that is present when, when you have a guy that is equally as promising as far as high upside goes on the mound and as a position player, you end up leaning towards just going the pitching route. And I think that's where you're going with a guy that the with mid 90 that could be a, a mid 90s fastball with a wipeout slider all that good stuff so i'm going with nazir Mule as a pitcher but i think i think like you said kid i think that you he he will be a two-way guy i don't know how long that's gonna last but i don't even know i, I don't even know if that will last into full season ball right we're gonna see Mule down in um, arizona this year i guess for the entire year if i'm if i'm putting money down on it we might see him at the tail end of the season in myrtle beach but I think he doesn't make it to full season ball this year. So, yeah, I, I, I think that you see him right out as a as a uh, two-way player for now. It will have a, a great entertainment value if we get to see that on MILB TV in 2024. This actually kind of segues us into the draft, uh, which I think both of you guys have sort of been following, uh, Zumach more, more so. I assume you have some names that you're looking at. The Cubs picked 13th overall. That's their first pick. And then they had to forfeit their second round pick because they signed Dansby Swanson, but they got kind of got it back because the Cardinals signed Wilson Contreras, which still makes me sad, but I kind of understand it and I'll, I'll live with it. But uh, yeah, what, what kind of names you got for the first three picks? Because the Cubs picked three times and it's the first time 100. Oh, boy, we're kind of doing like a mock right here. Um, yeah, so 
I've got Attack 100, and then I've got my Mach 1.0 that's going to drop the 15th of February. So I'll, I'll pick a different player than my Mach 1.0, just kind of mix it up a little bit. But I was talking today on Twitter about Colt Emerson, you know, kind of in that Gunner Henderson kind of mode of just a lefty high school shortstop slash third baseman type of profile, somebody with a lot of skills, uh, actually almost the same age at the draft, you know, so there's a lot of like physical projection there that added some good weight. Colt Emerson is a guy that if you look at like pipeline, I think he's ranked in the thirties. If you look at, you know, a few of the other publications, not prospects live, you're going to see him ranked a little bit lower. I don't really buy that. I think he shows a lot of skills, not quite the same, but similar to like holiday last year, um, Jackson holiday, where that was a guy that started the the draft cycle ranked in the 30s, and then he went 1-1. So I, I really like Cole Emerson. Arjun Namala is another guy that gets a lot of pub as well, another high school shortstop. Matt Shaw is a shortstop out of Maryland, so he's a college guy. And basically, when there's a lot of people that really love him. They love his profile. They think he's going to really, really hit at the next level. Not sure he's going to necessarily be like a a starting caliber shortstop, but might be third baseman or second baseman, but just really, really love the hitting tendencies. And then I'll, I'll avoid diving into too many pitchers because I swear last year I would talk about a pitcher and they would get hurt and I don't want anybody to get hurt. So um, I won't jinx anybody there, but, but those are, those are three names in the first round. So I went here in the first round. What type of profile do you want for the second round there, Ken? That's an interesting question because I, I guess one of my follow-up questions was whether you think the Cubs are going to take best available or are they going to go under slot and try for basically bulk bulk quality throughout the first 10 rounds of the draft. My yeah. thinking is that because there's so much pitching depth now that they want to get some hitters. They want to shore up whatever this patchwork of a lineup is because right now I don't think this team, uh, the Chicago Cubs at MLB level, can hit. I don't think they're going to score many runs. They'll play great defense. They'll pitch very well. They'll be lucky to score three runs a game. That's just kind of like the way I'm seeing it right now. So I think we should stay with hitters if possible in the first three rounds and then go with pitching later. Sure. Um, Yeah, you know, I I was so convinced they were going to take a hitter last year. (laughs) And, and they went pitcher because there were just people in, in the building that fell in love with Kate Horton. So, like, to them, that was their best available. And they're, like, there were a few other people that if they had fallen to them that I think they would have had to make a second choice but uh, or a different choice. But otherwise, they just they were they had zeroed in on Cade as as they saw this guy's front line. It's hard to hard to turn down a frontline pitcher if that's who you think he is. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll guess hitter. I'll guess hitter right now. I, I think that's you know a fairly safe guess with with some of the names that are out there. And so yeah, I'll I'll go hitter. So if you want another hitter in the second round, I'm trying to think about 80s. You know, Rock Reggio is another guy. He's like a second baseman outfielder out of Oklahoma. He was a big name in the draft a couple of years ago, and then I don't think he officially pulled out. But I think he, he was clearly a very strong commitment. He was going to Oklahoma. And he, he's a name that probably falls somewhere in that second to third round range, but a really quali- quality hitter. I don't know where he plays long term, but Rocco Reggio is definitely somebody that's kind of been on my radar for a while. And then I'm going to mess with you here, Ken. I'm going to go pitcher. It's somewhere in that third round range. And I will actually talk about a guy. Well, I'll give you one hitter and one pitcher. I am very curious to see what Carson Montgomery, a right-handed pitcher out of FSU, does this year. Because he came in, he had a ton of potential. He was a big 2020 draft prep guy, uh, so high school pitcher, and then clearly had big bonus demands. Nobody met it. He goes to campus and just super inconsistent, but the stuff is still pretty interesting. It needs to get ironed out. And so I don't know. He could fall somewhere in that one, two, three range. Or he's a guy that that teams really question whether he's ever going to put it together. I'd take a chance on Carson if he's healthy. I think he's really, really intriguing. But another guy that I've seen is Kobe Shade. He is a center fielder, played a little bit of left field for Oregon. I think he fits somewhere in that like third to fourth round range. 
made one of the best plays I've ever seen on the diamond. Robbed a home run. I think that's the only time I've ever seen a home run robbed. To be fair, I've watched more games at Wrigley. Uh, you can't really do that. But I've never seen a home run robbed, and it was just incredible play. And I remember, like, just texting people, and I was just like, oh, my God, like, Kobe Shade can play major league defense right now. It wasn't just that play. He was all over the place. So I think that's a guy that fits in that, like, third-round range where, yeah, the Cubs don't really need to address outfielders. I think you just get good value. So I don't know. I think I tossed, like, six or seven names out, but just some people on my radar. And, and it'll be interesting as the season kind of starts and we see – how things start to shake out for guys. I am not into the weeds like uh, Zumak. The, the the draft is is his specialty. Um, I'm just uh, along for the ride like you can as far as the draft goes. I'll just add in that that I think pretty consistently you see teams across the league they're not drafting for need at the major league level. There's a difference between drafting for need at the major league level and drafting for need in the organization as a whole, right? If you feel like your organization is severely lacking on pitching depth, then you go out and draft several pitchers, not necessarily a pitcher in the first round, but a a draft littered with pitchers. But I I, I think pretty consistently you don't see teams going after, oh, we have a, a, a crappy catcher at the major league level. Let's draft a catcher right now because he won't even best case scenario um, won't be up for another couple of years, you know? And so by that, by that point, a lot can change in your organization. Yeah, I think that's fair. And the, the way I was thinking about it is you don't necessarily draft a shortstop and think he's going to be a shortstop. He can move anywhere across diamond. You just need to find a bat that plays and where he plays in the field. You figure out later, you at least that part of the lineup is good now. I, I totally understand what you're saying, Huss. And I, I think, again, just reiterating what I'm seeing in the system, lots of pitching depth, got to find some hitters. That That's just the way I'm thinking about it. For sure. That's something that the, the organization will, will tackle in the draft. I mean, I think that's that's a good way to look at it is if, if they don't feel confident in the current bats that they have in the system or the current infielders or outfielders in the lower levels or whatever that might be, that all plays into what I was kind of alluding to earlier, that the Cubs are trying to develop a or create an organization where every single year you have guys coming up to make an impact in Chicago. And so the, the best way to do that is have depth at every single position, all up and down every single level, level of the minors. And so if they don't feel confident in the guys making their way up to the lower levels in the right-handed pitching department for whatever, or for example, then you might see them attack that in the draft this year. Spring training is literally around the corner. By the time this releases, more pitchers and catchers will have reported to spring training in Mesa. That means we actually get to see the new rules in action pretty soon. Like uh, by the end of this month, we will see the first Cactus League games, which means bigger bases, shift restrictions, pitch clock, and also we'll continue to see the ghost runner or not the ghost runner because he's actually there, but, you know, the automatic runner. And now position players can't pitch except in special circumstances due to like a de facto mercy rule. We won't see that necessarily in spring training. But what do you guys think of these uh, new rule tweaks? I will talk about the pitch clock first. I want to talk about pitch clock because it is terrific, man. Like it is. I loved watching games with pitch clock last year in the minor leagues. I guess the past couple of years at this point. But really what the pitch clock does is it doesn't make the game feel absurdly fast. What the pitch clock does is it makes the game feel like it's moving at a natural pace. You know, you don't get guys that are taking a like literal minute between every single pitch on the mound. And it, it you could say the same thing about the guys in the box at the major league level, right? They're stepping out, taking their time, checking their batting gloves. They're doing the Nomar Garcia para 12 times before they get back in the box. And, Watching a minor league game, literally these games were like half an hour shorter than the major league games last year. Part of that is because there's not commercials that go super long, but part of that is this pitch clock. You know, it just keeps the game rolling. It did not feel out of the ordinary that the game was moving at that pace. It just made it feel better. It made it feel more entertaining. I loved it. I, I can't speak I can't speak highly enough about the pitch clock. It's to, to me the big thing with the pitch clock is I understand like baseball traditionalists that are like oh but like 
baseball is like the sport where you can't run out the clock and like there's no clock like limiting limiting you on, on the field and like you still can't like run out the clock i don't i don't i don't understand that argument because there's you still have to get the same amount of outs you still you cannot run a clock out in order to win the game that that's still in place still today even with the pitch clock so super super excited about that i'm excited i, I think everybody's gonna love it yeah, and I'm yeah. glad you said that because when I coached high school baseball, there was no clock, obviously, but the umpire would keep them going because mm-hmm. we would run out of sun. We're on a northern latitude in Chicago, so early in the season, the sun would set by like 6.30, so you got to keep going to get your five innings in. So I totally understand that, and I thought that was natural. Like, you don't want to stay on the mound forever. You just want to get your outs and get back to batting, and I, I think that that makes a whole heck of a lot more sense than, you know, whatever it is they're doing now, waiting 25 to 30 seconds between pitches. Yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of the pitch clock. I won't belabor that point. I, th- I think it's going to be great. Anybody watching the minors is going to be like, this is the type, this is the way the game should flow. Um, there'll be some ups and downs with it, but, but yeah, I think it's going to be good. I- I'll just point out one thing is I think this is one of the biggest lightning rods, and that's the shift rules. I actually don't think it's going to matter that that much. I think it's going to take some of the extremes out, which is just like, what are these guys doing? Or like, oh, they've got like, four infielders basically on one side and Cal Schwarber could hit a ball 120 miles an hour barreled and it's an out. I think it's just going to take some of those extremes out. I don't think it's going to do too much. We're probably going to see the the era of the stoutly built second baseman kind of go a bit by the wayside and we're going to see more guys with, with like Nico Horner type skill sets and frankly I think that's kind of just good for the game. So but otherwise, mostly, I think the shift just takes a few extremes out, and that's kind of it. And I don't know if it'll be as big of a deal if we look back on that a couple of years down the road. I've heard some people talk about the shift in the way where it's like, they're like, oh, like I'm, I, I just grew up thinking that like if I hit the ball straight up the middle, it was going to be a hit no matter what, and now it can be that way again. It's like that that's not going to be the case. Like on a, a lefty that pulls the ball, there is the shortstop is still going to be right up the middle. Like, if he hits the, hits the ball up the middle, it's going to be an out still. You're right. It's the extreme shifts that are going to be limited. It's it's the it's the balls that are hit really hard to the right side. Those are not going to happen anymore. But, like, those balls hit up the middle. Those are still outs now. <laughs> you know, that, that because the, the shortstop can set. He can be a step to the left of second base, and he can still be there, you know? Yeah, I imagine that uh, Major League Baseball is going to take a look at that and see how teams react and how teams try to play with the margins of the rule, as it were, before they decide to like set up basically a no man's land uh, type of zone, kind of like the defensive area under the basket in basketball where you can't take a charge. Usually MLB takes like forever to to figure out a rule. I think this is one of those things that they'll figure out very quickly. Like uh, when they first did full on replay, they had the whole trap transfer thing and they fixed that within a month. So I think this is fine. The new rules that we we talked about just today as of this record was the uh, automatic runner staying, which is fine. Like, I don't really care anymore. I think it should actually happen after the 12th inning, but whatever. And then. The position player pitching is better in my mind because I just it, it lost its novelty a long time ago. Like uh, you don't want to see that. You don't want to see a team basically get a cop out to using their bullpen. Uh, you you want to see them try to win as long as possible, and I think this will force them to at least do that. That's going to do it for this episode. I respect your gentleman's time and your opinions, and I really am honored that you decided to hang out with me tonight. You can find Greg Huss. Where are you at, sir? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Out of the Vines. Tweet at me any questions, comments, uh, concerns you guys might have. I'm I'm pretty pretty responsive on there. And yeah, be sure to check out Cubs on Deck uh, podcast. Really anywhere where you find your podcast on on the North Side Down YouTube page. The newest edition of Cubs on Deck going live on Tuesday the 14th. And you can go check out me 
Zumac and Brian Smith, we did a Cubs prospect fantasy draft, more or less, is what we did. So we all three drafted 20-man rosters of all Cubs prospects, and you can go check that out, and it, it's a lot of fun. So thank you so much, Ken, for for having us on. I've, I've had a blast here today. Yeah, thank you, man. And I promise you the five people who are actually listening to this thing will check it out, and I so <laughs> will I. <laughs> uh, Zumac, where are you at, sir? Yeah, you can find me at Ivy Futures uh, on Twitter, and then, uh, you know, I write at Northside Bound, a lot of draft content coming out, and then I'm on a few different socials, generally all Ivy Futures, because, uh, you know, who the heck knows what's going to happen with Twitter, but yeah, it, it's, you know, looking forward to connecting with a lot of people as we enter a new baseball season, it's going to be great. This has been episode number 57 of the World Series Dreaming, Chicago Cubs Dreamcast. Uh, you can find us on Twitter as long as it doesn't go down at WSDreaming underscore Cubs. Um, at Cubics Narconia. We have a Facebook page uh, for the time being until that goes down, too. Our site no longer exists, but the gentlemen at obstructiveview.net have been kind enough to let me write there so you can check out my thoughts on that website. I want to thank Rich Deanna for our theme song and Randall Sanders for pulling the final out of the World Series called by Pat Hughes, now Cubs Hall of Famer and Ford C. Frick Award winner, Pat Hughes. You can rate us on apple podcasts please share our podcast with all your friends email us at worldseriesdreaming at gmail.com if you have any questions and until next time go cubs more than just a game. hi i'm captain america here to talk to you about one of the most valuable traits a soldier or student can have patience Sometimes patience is the key to victory. Sometimes it leads to very little, and it seems like it's not worth it. And you wonder why you waited so long for something so disappointing. More than just a game.